watchers in the fourth dimension. Go, go now, or I will destroy you all. Naturally, I mean the rest are all foreigners. Oh, exactly. There's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And you know, just once, I'd like to meet an alien menace that wasn't immune to bullets. And this episode, we kick off the Tom Baker era as we tackle Robot. But before we get into that, Don's going to take a quick look at the mail. Over to you, Don. Beginning with our episode on the monstrosity, I mean, the monster of Peladon, (laughs) Nathan Laws says, appreciated this one. This is probably the Pertwee serial where I've agreed with the group's analysis the most. (laughs) There's really great potential here. Damn it, Julie. (laughs) Especially with how good the first Peladon was. But I think it's mostly wasted. Too true. Still great to have Venusian lullabies again, though. Agreed. Mark Saunders says, yes, it's a shame it just didn't have the same sheer quality as Curse. It should have worked and been a joyous revisiting of that earlier classic. But aside from seeing what has happened on Peladon since Curse and the Ice Warrior twist back, it doesn't have a lot to attract it. It shows how difficult it is to recapture that elusive lightning in a bottle. Too true. Too true. Bill Amon says, Love the history lesson, especially with my degree in economics. Love the serial summary, too. Wonderful discussion. I keep trying to get more friends to listen to you. You really do deserve more listeners. Thanks a lot, Bill. We appreciate that. Moving on to Planet of the Spiders, Mark Dunstan says, The production team wanted to give Pertwee an excellent story to finish him off, but this is not that story. Too long. <laughs> I will give it five eight legs out of 10. That sounds fair. Karen James Evans says, I'd give it a six out of 10. His unit of measurement is sadly not described. It is a messy Pertwee greatest hits, which is way too long. That aside, this one is the first time where the repeat season omnibus edition actually survives. Since season eight, there was only one story chosen to be edited down and shown in one go at Christmas. So far, it's been the demons, the sea devils, the green death, And now, this. It's an hour and 40 minutes and is sort of better, but suffers a little from choppy editing. Probably an hour and 50 minute cut would be better, as it's still shorter than the original, but smoother in the flow of the story than the Omnibus Edition. The Omnibus Edition on the DVD is presented unrestored, so it's an interesting comparison to the restored full story. Now, I do like that this story is all the Doctor's fault. If he hadn't taken the crystal before, the spiders would have found it earlier, and the feedback loop would have destroyed the spiders much earlier. And that ending is effectively the Doctor coming to terms with that. Personally, I like to think that the events of the war games hang over the third Doctor, and it takes effectively all of his run to get over them with this, the final part of that. It's an interesting perspective. I think so as well. And that completes the mail. Thank you, Don. And as a reminder to our listeners, we really love hearing all of your feedback, comments, questions, thoughts, etc. And as you've just heard, we do try to read out as many of them as possible. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watchers4D or via email at Watchers4D at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, so please do send us a note. Anyway, looking behind the scenes on Robot, we've got quite a lot to cover this episode because we have a new doctor. So we will start with that. And I think as we've mentioned in the past, John Pertwee had told Barry Letts and Terence Dix, the producer and script editor, that he would be leaving over the Christmas break from 1973 into 1974. So Letts and Dix spent much of early 1974 searching for the next actor to play the Doctor. And they wanted a different type of Doctor than Pertwee's Man of Action. And they decided that the new Doctor should be young in spirit, but old in appearance. Actors initially considered included Ron Moody, who had played Fagin in the 1968 film Oliver, Jim Dale, a regular in the Carry On films, Richard Hearn, best known for a character called Mr. Pastry, that's a new one to me, Michael Benteen of The Goon Show, Graham Crowden, who we will go on to see in season 17's The Horns of Nymon, Bernard Cribbins, who's best known to many of us as Tom Campbell in Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150 AD, and as Wilfred Mott in the David Tennant era of the show, and rest in peace, Bernard. And finally, Tommy Steele, a former pop star who had turned to acting. Ultimately, though, Letts and Dix were ready to offer the role to an actor by the name of Fulton Mackay, who we had previously seen as Dr. Quinn in season 7's Doctor Who and the Silurians. However, The new BBC head of serials, Bill Slater, received a letter from an actor named Tom Baker. Slater and Baker had previously worked together on a 1972 edition of Play of the Month. 
Baker was struggling to get acting roles and had been moonlighting as a construction labourer to make ends meet. Slater encouraged Letts and Dix to go to the cinema and watch Baker's performance in Ray Harryhausen's The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Letts was so impressed with Baker that he immediately abandoned his idea to have an older doctor, and following a meeting with the young actor on February 7th, 1974, he offered the role to a very surprised Tom Baker. And he was contracted for initial run of 26 episodes and was duly unveiled to the press on February 15th. The development of the fourth Doctor's character was handled by the incoming production team, producer Philip Hinchcliffe and script editor Robert Holmes, along with input from Tom Baker himself. They agreed that the character should be more of an eccentric than Pertwee's Doctor, and they decided that Baker would really play on the Doctor's alien nature in terms of thinking differently to we humans. Drawing on Baker's own bohemian tendencies, costume designer James Aitchison assembled an outfit for Baker that echoed the works of Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. One of the elements that turned out to be somewhat serendipitous was the scarf. Aitchison had acquired the services of an elderly woman by the name of Begonia Pope. She misunderstood Aitchison's instructions, and rather than using some of the wool to make a scarf, she used all (laughs) of it. Fortunately, Baker loved the absurdly long product, and the team agreed to keep it. And that was the decision that made an icon. In addition to our new Doctor, we have a couple of other new faces. Firstly, in front of the camera, Ian Marta joins as Surgeon Lieutenant Harry Sullivan. Now, when the production team had started working on the new scripts, they had still envisioned the new Doctor as an older character. So they decided to introduce a younger male companion to handle the action much in the same way that Ian Chesterton, Stephen Taylor and Jamie McCrimmon most notably did during the Black and White era. And we have previously seen Ian Marta in season 10's Carnival of Monsters, and he had actually originally been offered the part of Mike Yates, which he declined. Like Baker, Marta was also given a 26-episode contract, and Elizabeth Sladen's contract was also extended to be coterminous with Baker and Marta's. Behind the scenes, Robot also marks the first time that Robert Holmes was officially credited as the script editor, although he had been acting in the role for much of season 11, shadowing his predecessor, Terence Dix. Dix convinced Holmes that the show had a tradition that the new script editor would commission their predecessor to contribute the first scripts of the new era. This was a lie. (laughs) They also have to help them move if at any time they need it. (laughs) Holmes was interested in a story that looked at how an advanced autonomous artificial intelligence might act. Dix, on the other hand, wanted to write about an oversized, sympathetic monster as inspired by King Kong. And these two ideas were basically just smashed together to get robot. Dix also drew on some of his previous other work, particularly an episode of The Avengers called The Mauritius Penny, which he'd co-written with our old friend Malcolm Hulk. And that script was the inspiration for the scene where Sarah infiltrates a meeting of the Scientific Reform Society. Dix also incorporated several of the tropes of the Pertwee era to reassure viewers that they were watching the same show despite the change in lead actor. These included the return of Bessie, as well as the return of Unit, particularly Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, as well as Benton. And the latter was finally given a promotion to warrant officer, and I can already hear Julie cheering, (laughs) in order to replace Yates as the Brigadier's second-in-command. With the scripts completed and the new regulars signed on, it was now time to make the thing. Christopher Barry was assigned as director, and he had worked on the show before, directing quite a lot of stuff, actually. Season 2's The Rescue and The Romans, Season 3's The Savages, Season 4's The Power of the Daleks, Season 8's The Demons, Season 9's The Mutants, and half of Season 1's The Daleks. So, a very old hand here. Unusually, he decided to conduct all of the location filming on videotape rather than on film. This would be used to better facilitate the use of CSO, which would be used to realise the giant robot in Part 4, along with the god-awful tank in part three. (laughs) Speaking of that latter effect, this is where Christopher Barry came into conflict with Barry Letts. And don't forget that this is his final outing as producer. And it was Letts who was the one that suggested that they film it using an action figure, basically. Good choice, Barry. Joining Christopher Barry's creative team, we have James Aitchison once again providing costumes. Dudley Simpson providing incidental music, and George Galaccio returning as production unit manager. The only new face among our major players behind the scenes is designer Ian Rawnsley, who makes his only contribution to the show. He's also known for not just work on Zed Cars, but also its two spin-offs, Softly Softly and Softly Softly Task Force. And he also worked on Top of the Pops, Some Mothers Do Have Them, and To the Manor Born. 
<laughs> Don, you're so happy right now. I am, actually. <laughs> he got the trifecta, guys. Recording of the serial itself was impacted by an ongoing dispute between the BBC and its scene shifters, which resulted in some recording days being cancelled, as well as certain scenes having to be shot around objects that were left on set but couldn't be moved without angering the unions. One particular piece that they couldn't move was a ladder, and I think that's kind of crazy, like anyone can move a ladder, <laughs> right? The final scenes of the serial were shot on June the 7th, 1974 bringing the show's 11th production block to an end and marking the point at which Barry Letts formally handed over to Philip Hinchcliffe. In terms of finishing the serial, there was one final element over which Hinchcliffe had control, the title sequence. And he decided not to make any major changes from what he inherited and asked Bernard Lodge to replace Pertwee's profile with Baker's and to add an image of the TARDIS. And with that, an iconic sequence was born. As we already know, the story was filmed as the final story in the show's 11th production block, but was held over to be the season opener for season 12, and was broadcast between the 28th of December 1974 and the 18th of January 1975. And the first episode attracted a very respectable 10.8 million viewers, many no doubt tuning in to get a first look at the new Doctor. And with that, it's time for us to move into the short summary, so thankfully I can stop talking for a bit which is in the hands of Julie this episode. Over to you, Julie. All I wanted to do was join an organization with other like-minded, smart individuals. Come to a few meetings, they said. We want to make a world a better place, they said. Instead of forming political parties or creating world-saving technologies, they rely on a mad scientist with crazy hair and his overly dramatic robot. They decided to take on UNIT, and that was really a bad idea, you know, since they had the doctor. Bad, bad decisions made. Definitely heard about him after that dinosaur incident. I also heard that after our last rally, they tried to nuke the world and grew a robot to like 100 plus meters or so. I just took myself right on home and fixed myself a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So part one, and we start with that new title sequence. It's not that much different other than here's the TARDIS. And thankfully not a full body shot of Tom Baker. Yeah, I was about to say it cuts. It's more personable that way. You know, you get to really see him instead of that full body shot where it just doesn't seem right. Yeah. And of course, we start out with the direct continuation from Planet of the Spiders, which is something we haven't seen in a long time, it feels like. Yeah, to have kind of like a recap, a replay of a previous serial. Yep. Yeah. We don't see that a lot. Exactly. I like it. It's kind of needed here. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's just we don't see it often. Right. So I did like that. I do like that Benton walks in and he's just like, oh, okay, he did it again. How nice. Nothing gets to Benton. Nothing. <laughs> and we basically, with Benton, immediately get an indication that he's been promoted. It's not mm -hmm. explicitly pointed out, but here he's referred to as Mr. Benton, because I don't know if it's the same in the US Army, but in the British Army, warrant officers are addressed in that manner. That is correct. Very, very subtle, but it's nice to see it acknowledged straight away. Although I did notice he's still credited in the end credits as Sergeant Benton. <laughs> Sometimes it takes a little while for things to be written down. You know, when I got promoted at work, it took a couple of weeks for that to show up on my instant messenger. So I understand. That's fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was just very, very ready with that sewing needle to get his new badge on his <laughs> uniform. Oh, absolutely. 100%. He just had it in his pocket. Like, I'm ready. Bitten's attitude here is just another reflection of the Brigadier's attitude, where his attitude throughout the entire scene, this opening scene, is continuing from before, and it is really funny. It's not just the taking it all in stride and, oh, this just happens all the time, but also becomes slightly annoyed by it all <laughs> in this first scene. <laughs> he really does seem annoyed that this is happening. It really gets in the way of him being able to talk about coffee yes. and make coffee. <laughs> I just think that's an excellent second layer outside of him being not phased or having no amazement at what has taken place. Well, I think he remembered when two changed into three, he was like laid up in bed and it took him a long time to get back in action. So the Brigadier was probably just like, oh, do I have to deal with all of that nonsense again? You raise a good point in bringing up Spearhead from space because... With that one, A, the Brigadier didn't know the Doctor that well. Mm -hmm. I mean, he'd met him basically twice as the second Doctor. But 
he didn't see the regeneration either. Mm-hmm. So he had no reason to believe that this person was the doctor and trying to build that trust was mm-hmm. a major theme. Whereas here, because he's now seen it happen, he spent time with the third doctor, it can just really progress the plot and they can jump straight into it as soon as the doctor's recovered from it. Get right into the silly outfits. Exactly. Oh, that Those decisions were made. <laughs> <laughs> Are we speaking about the costume change scene? The Viking is, versus. Is there okay. another? Oh thing no, no! That I just, I just, I feel like we jumped over a couple things, <laughs> we, but I would love did. to talk. I would love we to have. talk about the costume changes. With the costume changes, I think what's significant here is that immediately we are getting such a change in the character. I felt in this first episode in particular that Baker's portrayal of the Doctor is almost like a Looney Tunes character, and mm-hmm. it's not just that he changes into silly costumes, but. The show makes it seem like Bugs Bunny, he can do the change in two seconds and come right back out. That is a Looney Tunes joke, and I'm all here for it. I I loved it. Well, you also kind of see it in the scene where he's trying to convince Harry of his business. And he karate chops a brick, pulls out the skipping rope. It's a little bit cringy, but it is very cartoony. And we still get a few things that are still doctor-like. Him name-dropping Alexander the Great. Hannibal, Doctor, okay, I get it. You're name dropping again. That's something that part we like to do. So we still get a little bit of continuation of the previous one. Thanks, Terrence Dix. <laughs> and we get that line of, you might be a doctor, but I am the doctor, the definite article. And that feels kind of doctorish as something he might actually say. While we're discussing him, because there's other elements to go on, like the plot of the serial, but as we're talking about Baker as the doctor, let's also think about some of the things that are making him so much different than Pertwee. Did anyone else find his eyes to be incredibly large and expressive compared to Pertwee's? His eyes and his teeth. I mean, they are gigantic. It felt at times like he was trying to imitate Marty Feldman. Yeah, I'm also on the boat of, I don't know how I feel about the crazy faces, mainly because what happened a few times here, and it might be just the direction, I'm not sure, but he would make some weird crazy face. And yes, he's very expressive, but then the camera would just sit there on his face and he would be still for like five seconds. It's just like, I get it. Okay. Okay. I don't need to look at him anymore. So like, I'm still a little iffy on Tom Baker. Not gonna lie. I liked it because it generates that iffiness. Mm. It makes you wonder if you can trust this doctor without a lot of tedious, unnecessary backstory. He just seems a lot more unpredictable. It really does, and I hate to say this, it reminds me a lot of Troughton. Mm-hmm. Whereas Pertwee would just sort of run in, look how authoritarian, and I'm the alpha male here. Whereas Baker, you don't know what he's going to do. In fact, there's one scene, and it's a little further on, where they're investigating the fence, and they're looking at things, and that's a shot where you would have had to have had the third doctor right up front. Baker's sitting on the ground in the background. And then Mm -hmm. there are instances where if it was written for the third doctor, he would be driving Bessie to the location. The fourth doctor takes a nap in the back of the Jeep while it's happening. (laughs) It's the small things that I like. And what's interesting there, Don, is Terrence Dix said that because he didn't know what the character of the fourth doctor was going to be like, he effectively wrote the script as if he was writing for Troughton because he knew they wanted to go back to a more eccentric character. So he basically scripted it for the last non-Pertwee Doctor that he wrote for. Makes sense. And also to back up Don's point, you can just look at their costumes. The second Doctor and the fourth Doctor, there's a lot of similarities there, I think. They're a lot closer in dress than the third Doctor is to either of them. I wouldn't say they're particularly close in actual style. It's almost like in vibe. They have a certain shabbiness to them. Yes, it's the shabbiness, that's it. Exactly. I have some commentary on the attitude of the doctor, but it really comes in episode four. So I'll hold on to that for a little bit. But you're right. You can definitely tell the eccentricity is there and things like that. But I'm still holding out on that one. What I did like is the music. Yes. 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 Oh, my gosh. That percussion and low reads, the theme for the robot is awesome. Now, it does get a little bit repetitive just because the robot's on screen so much. And so we continuously play that theme. So by episode three, I was like, okay, I get it. But it was a very good theme. So I'm very happy about that. Dutters is bringing it. I thought it was very effective during that opening sequence, Mm -hmm. or at least we're seeing through the robot's eyes. Yes. 
and it's almost like a slasher movie the way it's shot and with the <laughs> the POV yeah yeah kind of horror movie score i thought that was really effective and it works pretty good right up until you actually see the robots really crappy little wrists i'm so glad you brought that up everything about the design i'm fine with but that is just drives me up the wall also do we have to continuously have the lego hands I get the Ice Warriors have it, but we really didn't need it with this robot as well. That's the thing with the reveal, the POV shot. And then like, especially when he takes out, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the character's name, the older gentleman who had the safe. Mm -hmm. Did anyone else think, and this is maybe a very deep reference here, that it was the old glory insurance bit from Saturday Night Live about the robot insurance? (laughs) Oh, dear. I know what you're talking about. (laughs) That's right, old people. Robots need your pills for fuel. And they will attack you. The old man, his name was Chambers, by the way. They missed a trick because it should have been Mr. Chin. The only thing that I really disliked was the beeps. When my dog gets concerned about beeps that happens in Doctor Who, it becomes one of those things. It's just that with the underlying music that was so good, it was like you could tone down the beeps a little bit so I can continue to listen to the awesome music that's playing. The music was awesome throughout this episode, especially I believe there was a moment where the unit troops are getting set up and it's this tension bed that Dutters lays down and it's really, really good with horns, strings, percussion. It adds into the tenseness of the moment, but it doesn't jar you to make you realize like, that's right, you're listening to music. It just fits into the feel and it was fantastic. <laughs> so we've got this robot that's going around killing people mm-hmm. and stealing things. Yes. We have the doctor with the Brigadier and Sullivan and to some extent Benton. We have a third plot line that ties everything together and that's Sarah asking the Brigadier to get her a visitor's pass to think tank so she can write a piece on them. Which is wonderful and I love that the Brigadier for once in his life isn't going by protocol and he's like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's cool because it ties everything together, but it's also her going off and doing her own thing. It goes back to that question we were asked when we did the season 11 retrospective about her having her own career. And we see her here continuing to pursue that. I agree with all that, but I also found it extremely coincidental Uh, that she just happened to go to the same place. If they just put something in that would maybe have given her a reason to go there that was a bit stronger, I would have liked that better. But I liked everything she did there. I hear they're doing some really interesting things with robotics or something like that. Yeah, just something to make that a bit of a stronger tie. Instead, she calls the Brigadier a swinger. Yeah, yeah, she did. It's the mustache. (laughs) I don't think that means what you think it means, Sarah. (laughs) But we also get one, our tiny bit of feminism with finding out that the director is the woman. Because this is how we make feminism happen in these episodes is just, oh, hey, look, woman in charge. This means that it's feminist. Um, Okay, (laughs) that's not quite how that works. But okay, I see you're trying. And we immediately get Sarah Jane talking with these folks and then immediately just barging into a door that says positively no admittance. Mm -hmm. Without any reason to suspect anything's going on. (laughs) She's just like, I want to go in there. It's almost like she does, though, because she mentions and very deliberately mentions the disintegrator gun while she's there and then barges her way into the secure area. It's risky behavior, and I don't think she would do it without a reason. So I think she suspects something of Think Tank, but it's not explicitly said before then. And that's where the script could be better to give her that reasoning, because she just comes off as kind of rude and slightly crazy (laughs) Mm -hmm. for just doing that. But not as crazy as J.P. Kettlewell. Oh, Oh, Professor Bedhead. (laughs) Incidentally, the actor who plays Professor Kettlewell is the same one who played Professor Watkins in The Invasion. He is clearly being stereotyped as a crazy professor. (laughs) One of the things that I personally think they did a pretty good job of is I didn't necessarily see him as being one of the kind of side villains, I guess you would say, because he's not ultimately the bad guy. But I really didn't actually see him as being on the side of crazy director lady. Yeah, that's true. Because really, if you think about it, if they were doing this, I don't think they'd really have any reason to move him to a different location and keep the robot. It seems like they were thinking steps ahead and they wanted to make him seem as much of a harmless old man as possible. And they did a very good job. I guess. But once you've got a disintegrator gun, you don't really have to worry about (laughs) it. 
true, but I think that it's impressive that they were thinking so long term and that Kettlewell did such a good job of coming across as someone who's completely harmless when he's actually not. He's a paid up Nazi, basically. Uh, (laughs) What I like about the way this story pans out is as Sarah's investigating, we see the doctor starting to put the pieces together. He knows the plans have been stolen some of the parts have been stolen, and therefore someone is clearly building the disintegrator gun. In the meantime, we've got Sarah going around asking about it, and the doctor has the opportunity to tell the brigadier and get some additional security on the gun. And this just kind of shows him just thinking ahead constantly, because when the brigadier comes in and tells him, this is everything we've done, the doctor says, well, can still get to it from below. It just shows him as being clever. I dig that with this doctor. We finish this episode with the robot having stolen the last piece that they need to build the gun. Sarah blags her way back into Think Tank, having her own adventures, and comes face to face with the robot. That's our cliffhanger, and that takes us into part two. All right. So we had an appropriate length recap. (laughs) I thought you would enjoy that. (laughs) So, yay. You sit there with a stopwatch every time, don't you? (laughs) Maybe. I can also just hit pause and see what the time says. (laughs) But yes. And we finally get the doctor realizing that Sarah Jane is missing. Took him long enough. Not just that, but she runs straight into Miss Winters when she runs out from the robot, who just brushes the whole thing off as a joke, as if that was always what was planned since they knew what she was up to. And I can't really put my finger on whether the scientists are intentionally trying to act suspicious with her, or they're just playing a cat and mouse game. It feels like cat and mouse. It feels cat and mouse. Yeah. Okay. Because it just felt so intentional for them to act in such a suspicious manner. It's just kind of blowing my mind. It's like they wanted to get caught. The robot starts telling Sarah what it's programmed for. It includes mining and handling radioactive materials. And Miss Winters is like, okay, shut up now. Because it's telling her too much. Like given that it has just been mining and handling a radioactive material. It also doesn't help that these scientists think that they're the elite and that they're better than everyone else. So I think they have a feeling of even if she figures something out, it doesn't matter because we're too smart. And they don't quite count on the doctor. Sarah's reaction to the robot, I think, is very similar to what Joe would feel like with the robot. Oh, 100%. She feels so sorry for it and that she feels bad for it. And it's fun that like robot doesn't understand, but in the back of its head, in its memory, I guess you would say, remembers her later on. But it's just very much a Joe type of moment. It was also very interesting to me to see how far they were willing to go to screw with Sarah, with the robot, because they're basically just threatening her with it right there. And they don't even know whether or not it will go through with it. Mm-hmm. Like We get that little side of, well, we've only just reset it. We don't know how effective that was. It could have killed her. We go back, and I love these next little things with the doctor. First off, we have the doctor building something. I have no idea what in the world he's building. It reminded me of those weird contraptions that part we would build with the cup of tea on top. But then... I think he was just stacking stuff. I, <laughs> I think he was just bored. It's true. But what I liked is that the doctor was having a conversation and then Sarah comes barging in and basically finishes the sentence. And I thought that that was really, really cleverly done. Yes. I love that. And then the doctor being like, and Copernicus... Because, yes, Copernicus is amazing. Yes, he's Polish, and that's why I care. (laughs) (laughs) I love that scene with the Doctor and Kettlewell as well. They do science together. The Brigadier, in trying to talk to Kettlewell, is not getting anywhere. So the Doctor comes in, basically goes into Kettlewell's wheelhouse, and then pivots the conversation and says, Professor, I think you should tell us about the robot. It's when he drops his voice after being so high and light right there, and it just gets so serious. It was very well done. That's another element that feels very Troughton-esque to me. Extraordinarily, yes. Baker's voice does have a tremendous range. A tremendous range. Mm -hmm. Although then he goes and calls the Brigadier Alistair, and that just weirds me out. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the Brigadier wearing civilian clothing. Weirds me out. (laughs) Once Kethwell starts telling them about it, he drops one of my favorite words, and he describes Think Tank as... (laughs) Nincompoops. I don't know why. I always love that. I once had an exec who called someone a nincompoop in the meeting, and it was the best thing ever. So I have an inexplicable love of that word. But he also drops the nugget that the robot will go crazy or insane if it's forced to go against its prime directive, which by this point we know is happening. Most other robots are less of a drama queen about it than this one, though. Yes. 
We get to another fun little thing. And the reason why I bring it up is, yes, my closed captioning comes to save the day again. So after the doctor falls asleep on a table, which, okay, you're a weirdo. He gets that phone call from Kettlewell. And then he's like typing on the typewriter. And it's like jaunty music. (laughs) 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 Is what is playing while he's typing on the typewriter. And I thought that was very fun. It's just also like a thing. Like the sped up element of it. I didn't love that effect, but I get what they were doing. And we have our shot of Bessie. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he drives over to Kettlewell's and as he suspected, it was a trap. Or we didn't learn he suspected that until we read what he left for Sarah when she reads it later. It's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I find it interesting in the choreography of that scene with the robot where I don't know, maybe it was just badly executed, or maybe I was expecting more to happen, but when the doctor is going from one part of the room to the other, he tosses the beads on the floor, he takes his scarf and stretches it across two columns, especially when he threw the beads on the floor and the shot focuses on the beads next to the robot's feet, I'm like, oh, here we go, he's going to slip. Nope, nothing, doesn't have any effect at all. It didn't do anything. And I obviously felt that way about the scarf because I didn't see how that was going to work at all. And then the hat has temporary success. Yeah, I love the hat bit. The hat bit amused the hell out of me. It was a very good bit, and it just was interesting to see. I feel like if this was Pertwee, he wouldn't be trying to do things like, let me trip it up, or let me throw beads on the floor. He would be like, how can I karate chop this? (laughs) But here is like a person who you know is intelligent, and he's just using not his strength, but just his cleverness to figure out ways to take the environment and use it to his advantage. Now, before we get to that, there are two other things in this episode I want to discuss, since that's basically our cliffhanger. Firstly, this is where we start getting introduced to the Scientific Reform Society. So episode one, we find out about Think Tank, and then there's this even more sketchy, shadowy organization that's infiltrated Think Tank, which is the SRS. And Sarah goes along, talks to someone. The guy she talks to looks a little bit like Goebbels. (laughs) and you know she's being told that her attire would be unacceptable in the world that would be ruled by them and they believe in rule by elite and not democracy and basically very quickly established as these are just not nice guys and they wonder why they're getting bad reviews yes exactly one star would not like to be lectured in a sexist manner by these guys again (laughs) and is the second thing that benton got promoted because benton got promoted That was not it, but that is explicitly called out here. So yes. And Julie, I did note that when Sarah says congratulations about time two, that you were probably almost certainly agreeing with that. Absolutely. I do think it's interesting. He effectively gets promoted two ranks because above sergeant in the British Army would be staff sergeant. So double promotion for Benton. Good for him. No, the other thing I had was Harry being sent in. And if the link to the Avengers wasn't explicit enough before, he looks just like Steed, complete with bowler hat. He does look like Steed. I did have that written down. He really does. It's the chin, I think. It's that. It's the bearings. He even tips his hat in the same way that Steed would. Well, he doesn't do a very good job, but we'll get there. (laughs) Steed tended to get captured and had to be rescued by his female sidekick. That was a trope of the Avengers. Maybe he succeeds, actually, at being Steed and getting himself captured. Anyway, I feel like with all of that mentioned, we've talked about the Doctor being tricked and having to face off against the robot. And we have a second cliffhanger with someone being menaced by the robot. And that takes us into part three. Episode three. If you thought that we were changing eras and we weren't going to get long recaps, you were sadly (laughs) mistaken. (laughs) You stole my thunder. What I will point out here is we haven't fully changed eras. This is the last of Barry Letts. He strikes again. Recaps and CSO. Barry Letts is a problem. We haven't touched upon that yet. We've had some CSO. We'll get into the more. But before we do that, Anthony in the behind the scenes mentioned the video. Did anyone else find the use of video incredibly striking and disorienting? It made me feel that I wasn't watching something that was done in 1974. It made me feel like I was watching something that was done in 1984. Yes, I felt it, but it gave it a more consistent tone. So I think one of the things I've really struggled with in the Pertwee era, Planet of the Daleks strikes me as a particularly poignant example, was where there was an obvious change from videotape to film when you're moving from a set to a location. 
and they're meant to be the same place. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. So this gives it a more consistent feel, but it does make it look a bit weird. I'm sure I'll get accustomed to it, but it just my remembrance of seeing things that are done in the on video that are put out there are usually things from the 80s, not from 1974. So it kind of is jarring, but it works. Speaking of the reprise, when we did Planet of the Spiders, we complained about the beginning of, I think it was part six, where there was an extra couple of scenes inserted into the reprise that weren't in the cliffhanger. And I didn't double check it, but I felt like that was done here as well. I think there were a couple of things, but it wasn't two and a half minutes worth of things. That's true. It was like, oh, here's an extra sequence or here's an extra other thing of trying to destroy. It was not sitting there being like, oh, hey, we're going to have a whole nother cutscene with Sarah Jane and then come back. It was not the uncensored director's cut of the previous cliffhanger. It just feels cheap when they do it, no matter how short or long it is. I feel like they've cheated us out of something. You worry too much and you you pay too much attention to that. (laughs) You sound like my mother. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, no. Anyway, we have them understanding that the robot's programming is altered, which is very sad. And then everyone's shooting at him. And I'm like, he's just a misunderstood robot. And it's not even having any effect anyway. You're just wasting bullets. He's only murdered a couple people. I mean, come on. Oh. Plus, he clearly killed the guard dog in episode one. Yes, he did. Okay, kill him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Wipe yeah. him out. Yeah. I was surprised Julie wasn't madder about that. I couldn't tell if he actually killed it or just scared it off. Since I couldn't see it, my mind was like, oh, the dog just ran away. Benefit of the doubt for the win. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. No dead dogs here. I do enjoy the scenes with the robot and unit troops where this is before the robot gets that disintegrator ray, but they just keep shooting at him and it's just strategic moving around to just keep repeatedly shooting him and doing nothing. I especially appreciate it when they came from behind him and got closer to do it and still no effect. <laughs> it's wonderful. And then like we get into further episodes, there's more I'll talk about with the robot, but I love how like how close they can get to the robot and like nothing happens. And I'm just like, the robot doesn't do a good job of anything. Well, that's the thing. It's like when you think about the threat that the robot is, if you just put surveillance on the robot, you'll be okay. Oh, he's walking over to kill that old man with the safe. Okay, well, it's going to take him 15 minutes to cross the yard to get to him so we can get him out of there because we know where he is. Just as long as you have eyes on him, you're fine. That's why I don't like big clunky robots. Yeah, he's no T-1000 from T-2 or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> but we get to an excellent scene. There's a lot of things that I like that come up here is one, obviously Benton making tea for everybody and he gets to keep a cup for himself. And that's because Yates wasn't there. That's very true. Sarah Jane plays him <laughs> and she's like, well, we're not under unit <laughs> jurisdiction, so I'm going to go do what I want to do. And Benton is like, I can't, there's nothing I can do here. And he looked so sad. <laughs> And she was right. Oh, yeah. No, she's absolutely right. But it still made me sad. And then the Brigadier's mad about it. And the Doctor's mad about it. And everyone's mad at Benton. But Sarah was right. Although one of my favorite conversations is the conversation between the Doctor and the Brigadier after talking about what's been stolen. And the Brigadier says, naturally enough, the only country that could be trusted was Great Britain. And the Doctor says, well, naturally, I mean, the rest are all foreigners. (laughs) (laughs) quite right quite right too that was one that kind of hits close to home nowadays because that's a lot of feelings for a lot of people in a lot of different countries but yeah it's just so telling so julie you touched on finding out what was stolen and beyond the plans of the disintegrated gun it was only the launch codes for the nuclear weapons of the usa russia and china that are all kept in the same location that seems kind of dumb And now the SRS has the ability to nuke the world. There's a huge flaw in their plan here. They want the world to be a better place. One of the things that they said is that as the elites, they should be listening to us, but all they do is just do everything incorrectly. So what are we going to do? We're going to nuke the world, which is going to destroy the world for decades, if not centuries. For a bunch of scientists, they didn't seem to think about the half-life. Yeah. 
Especially when they believe strongly in an environmental cause, I can't think of something that would do more damage to the environment <laughs> than what they are threatening. Given that they were all a bunch of scientists, do you think they just completely neglected to have a nuclear physicist in their org? I think it's childish mentality. Well, this is my ball. If you don't want to play by my rules, I'm going to take it home with me. And the other thing too, which would have made a lot more sense, and I, I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but they have a bunker, they're going down there and all this other stuff. You find out they don't even know if they have enough food and water for this. <laughs> like, I, I, mind blown. If you're going to plan to nuke the world, you should have a better plan. I think as far as the groups that we've seen, they're doing something terrible for the good of the world. This probably has the worst plan <laughs> and the worst planning to initiate that plan. It's just sad. Yeah. It almost makes me think that their plan was to threaten to nuke the world and have the world agree to basically adhere to their rule instead. What it actually feels like is that scene in one of the episodes of Black Books where the Jehovah's Witnesses turn up at Bernard's door and he's trying to avoid doing his taxes. So they, he opens the door and says, we're here to tell you about Jesus. And he goes, great, 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 come in. And they sit down and they're like, well, we don't know what to do next. <laughs> Our bluff has been called. So we go to this meeting. Oh, I love this meeting. I love this meeting so much. We have crazy lady. Like, I, oh my God. Turns out she is a full on fascist. They even have armbands, guys. And gloves. She's wearing black, glo black leather gloves in the middle of a meeting. What the hell? What is the deal with black leather gloves? What is the deal with that? What is in our minds that whenever you see anyone in a business suit, man or woman, you get them speaking in front of people, they use a lot of arm movements, and they wear black leather gloves, you're immediately thinking they're evil. Just because of the gloves. Yeah. I'm not going to comment on that. But what I find also ridiculous about this whole thing, obviously she's crazy. She's talking about them being the elite. And I'm like, what makes you the elite? That makes zero sense. What makes anyone the elite? Please. I would love to know that. But what I'd also like to know is the doctor comes in and it becomes a comedy act and people just laugh and there's like a laugh track. It felt off that everyone was just laughing. I'm pretty sure they thought he was there to be entertainment for the meeting. Yes. That makes and he played it up as a distraction while unit could show up. But I don't understand. Like, that wasn't a type of meeting where there would be entertainment. I don't know. If I had to listen to her talk for that long, I would be willing for any kind of break at any point. <laughs> it felt off to me. It just didn't seem to fit what was happening in that discussion in that meeting. Maybe they didn't think it was entertainment. Maybe they thought he was like a gesture type of character. Someone you go to an event, there's a person who decides to be a streaker. You point, well, you laugh. Well, haven't they had more of these meetings before? So It only takes once. Didn't Wimbledon have a streaker once in its history? Something to like throw people off and they were just amused at the silliness. I actually want to go back to a point you made earlier, Riley. I think this takes its influence from cartoons here again. The doctor even gets up on stage and immediately says, what can I do to keep you entertained until my friend the Brigadier shows up? It's so over the top and exaggerated and something that would never, ever happen in real life that I can only think of this as basically imitating cartoons. He's very much Bugs Bunny in that manner, and that he's trying to use <laughs> his wit, and he's trying to make himself the fool in order to distract people, which is also a very Troughton thing to do. Right. I am loving Baker as the fourth doctor. Every single element of it, I am enjoying. I think my favorite part of that is when the brigand unit shows up and someone fires a shot, and he acts like he's been shot. And lays down on the table. And then when Sarah's like looking at him, he winks at her, even though there's an entire audience there that will see the same wink. It's brilliant. And to your point, Don, units to the rescue and Sarah's taken as a hostage, which is just... I don't even understand that. This is what I was talking about earlier. Benton and the Brigadier were within like a foot of Sarah and they were right next to the robot, but the robot wasn't doing anything. So I really was very confused. I'm like, you could have easily have gotten Sarah. Yes, the blocking for that entire scene, plus their escape is poor. Bad. Yes. Very poor. There are moments of questionable direction. The blocking was so poor, I couldn't tell whether he was using the robot as a shield or not. That's how bad it was. It was so unnatural and so not meeting the angles of where the unit troops were firing. I just couldn't figure out what he was doing. <laughs> And that's disappointing because we know Christopher Barry is a good director. Absolutely. 
that kind of thing is beneath him. He has one or two things coming up that I enjoy, but we're about to get to something that he does that I think was mentioned in the behind the scenes that was forced upon him. We should start to wrap things up. So let's talk about this bunker. It's got an automated defense system, which I think is pretty neat. It's the kind of thing you'd expect some scientific fascists <laughs> to come up with. I immediately figured out what they should do. I was like, okay, so you hide behind the entrance of the bunker, you lure the robot out, and then you sneak behind it and you go in. I was saying that in episode three, they didn't do that until episode four. I was like, come on, guys. It's not that hard. But in the assault on the bunker, we do get the doctor using his sonic screwdriver to detonate the mines. So a nice sea devils throwback. Yep. This is my least favorite use of sonic screwdriver, which is basically like a, it does whatever it needs to do just because we need it to do the thing. That's very new who. Yeah, this use of the Sonic was just like, oh, hey, how convenient. I can blow up these things. And oh, how convenient. I can put a little laser on it and I can use it. as I'm like, oh, come on. Although that laser attachment pretty much stays on it for the rest of his run. I'm kind of okay with that. It's just, I guess what didn't happen is that there were no rules established for the Sonic. And so at this point, we're still figuring out what it does. And it just seems like it can do everything. This is written by Terrence Dix, who has overseen every single script since the war games. So candidly, I think he should know better. Anyway, sorry. I love seeing the sonic screwdriver. I hate how it's used because it's over the top and ridiculous. All right, since we're getting to the end of the episode, we have Miss Winters sending the robot out with the disintegrator gun, which is used on a unit soldier. Poor guy. I'd love a cut away to his friends at the bar like you get in Austin Powers, but <laughs> anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and of course, we get that piece of Barry's bad CSO. <laughs> the action man tank. Beautiful thing. Best CSO we've seen. <laughs> the CSO itself wasn't too bad, but good God, it was a toy tank on a piece of string. I keep wondering how much better it had to look on an old CRT TV, obviously preferably in black and white. I don't know if it looked good, but I'm sure it looked better. I honestly was amazed. I just immediately was just so shocked and energized when I saw that shot. I just kept saying, they did it. I can't believe it. I felt like Charlton Heston at the end of Planet of the Apes. They did it. <laughs> Those animals, they really did it. They did a perspective <laughs> shot like that in order to show size with a model. Like, wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Speaking of which, the robot destroys it and then says, go now or I will destroy you all. And that's our cliffhanger and we're into part four. He's clearly an ancestor of Calculon in Futurama. Oh, no, that's, oh, <laughs> he goes full Calculon when Kettlewell dies. Once we saw the twist with Kettlewell, we all kind of felt it coming that he was going to get killed. Oh, But then yes. Don is absolutely right. When the robot reacts to that, that is Full Calculon right there. Absolutely. Just so overly dramatic, but I enjoyed it. Can we add some points to the camp count? Yes. For the robot. Wait, yes. wait. Don is actually saying we should. I know. I, I know. How many are we adding? I don't care. <laughs> At least two. Let's go with a full four. Fair enough. One for each episode. Okay. One of the things I found interesting. So we have Kettlewell. And he's starting to see that this is a bad decision. He's like, oh, wait, we're actually going to do the nuke? That seems like a bad idea. He's the one who has the codes. He could very easily just mess up the codes. Mm -hmm. He has that ability. And this is why I still think the original plan was not to actually nuke the world. It was just to threaten to nuke the world. And that's why he's gone along with it so far. And now he's like, wait, what? We're actually going to do this? I agree with that. I think once she realized she wasn't going to get her way, Winters just decided to go full on. If I can't have it, nobody can. And I guess that's also why they were not prepared with food and water. And they had to go <laughs> check. Because they weren't meant to actually do this. While they're checking... She decides, we'll have Sarah and Harry killed, but we're going to do it later. That is the biggest fucking amateur thing ever. She's clearly never watched a James Bond movie because they're going to escape. They're going to cause trouble. That's just how this goes. Great scientists, terrible villains. Yeah, they suck. <laughs> Although I do really enjoy... Sorry, I was jumping the gun here a little bit. <laughs> Jump the gun. I love Kettlewell's death pose. <laughs> as I like to call it. <laughs> kind of the Fred Sanford heart attack pose in a way. <laughs> it's amazing. 
It, it's so wonderful. I love Kettlewell. He is an enjoyable character. I wish the villains, the two scientists, were a bit more well-rounded, but Kettlewell definitely is someone that is interesting, someone you want to see that conflict in somebody. And I like how they played it. It was the, you think he's just the tottering old man, then mm-hmm. you find out that he is actually in on it, but then you find out that he's not as crazy as the rest of them. And I just like that he has a lot of depth to him compared to some of the other characters. Absolutely. I want to mention something here. The countdown to the missile launch started. Then before he dies, Sarah and Harry rescue him and he cancels the countdown. As soon as she can, Miss Winters restarts it. That's two (laughs) countdowns. That then gets cancelled by the Doctor who babbles away wonderfully as he works. But then later, it gets started for a third time. (laughs) yes it's a little bit ridiculous i have a comment on the doctor though i love the babbling the babbling was wonderful i really enjoyed that what i didn't enjoy was his smug ass face and kicking his feet up yeah i get it he's the smartest man in the room troughton would have turned to his companion and be like hey look i did the thing whereas the doctor was just like yeah i don't know it came across that just the end of it came across as very smug I'm going to defend that a little bit in that this is the first story, so they are very much figuring out his character. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see him mellow a little bit, but he'll always be a bit bonkers. Again, I don't mind the bonkers, because again, the smugness kind of goes into why I thought that Pertwee was a dick. I think we need to color in the portions in between all of our multiple countdowns. For example, (laughs) number one, did anyone else really, really enjoy Sarah Jane here where she has the gun and basically she's like, I don't give a shit. I'll shoot you. That was really enjoyable. And her delivery was was very, very wonderful. I really enjoyed that. It's one of those things where the Brigadier pulls the gun on her and Miss Winters says, you won't shoot me. And you know that's true because the Brigadier's old school British etiquette, like he will never shoot an unarmed woman. But Sarah Jane, she's been basically abused by Miss Winters all story. And let's also point out the fact that we've been developing this emotional relationship, this emotional connection between her and the robot. And she's just seen the robot basically lose its father. Sarah Jane is at a point where like, she just doesn't give a shit anymore. And that was just refreshing to see because also at the end of this entire serial, Sarah Jane is kind of broken and exhausted from the emotional roller coaster she's gone through. On a lighter side note, speaking of countdowns, how about that smash zoom for each second of the countdown? Anyone else <laughs> love that? Oh man, that was fun. That oh, felt like man. something that you would see like on a countdown, like on a Nickelodeon like game show to like smash zoom each second. Nah, nah. All right. The other thing we probably need to color in is the robot completely losing it wants to destroy humanity and only save sarah because she's been kind to it don't worry you'll be fine (laughs) rest of the planet i'm wiping out but you're good so we'll find a way for you to survive in a post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland that'll be cool but wait a minute wait how's the robot supposed to do that i thought sarah went home didn't she go home (laughs) oh i'm just making fun of benton there a little bit just a tad yes I think he may have gotten too many taking it for the team beatings from the third doctor (laughs) in the head for him to come up with that one. That one was just like, what are we doing with this? Are you kidding me? Well, someone had to forget. And unfortunately, for script purposes, it had to be Benson. Well, I think the other thing to think about is that since she's not unit, ultimately, she's not under their jurisdiction. So ultimately, they don't have to pay attention to what's going on with her. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it kind of seems out of character because we know of Benton as being the caring and paying attention because he really does pay attention. But he also is in a new role, so he has more responsibilities. So he might have just was dealing with that. And to be fair to him, he's also the one who saves the day. He remembers the metal virus. He does. And then the Brigadier gives him this like reprimanding look and it's like, Brigadier, you should be proud of him. The Doctor recognizes his smarts. He does, and it's wonderful, and I love it. I have it in my notes that I was expecting you to make a comment about how much you love Benton's wide (laughs) grin at that point. I mean, there's a lot of things I love about Benton, but what I don't understand, one, Benton was also smart enough to pick up the disintegration gun because you don't want that just lying around and getting into the wrong (laughs) hands. But what I don't understand, and they gloss over it as they often do, is why the disintegrator gun would cause the robot to grow 
This was kind of said in part three. Kettlewell talks about how he invented living metal and it's established that he made the robot out of that. And the disintegrator gun basically provided the energy for the living metal to activate and grow. Oh, God. How in the world were they supposed to? How else are we going to get our King Kong ending without that? Oh, no, I don't. (laughs) That was such an off can comment and it's not explained very well. I was confused, too, when it happened. I not only was he getting bigger, but he was like tottering a bit. I was like, it's making him bigger and drunk. What is this (laughs) gun doing to him? Cattlewell talks about both the living metal and the virus in one sentence in part three. (laughs) And I think it's the doctor who makes an offhand comment about the disintegrator gun being basically an energy wave or an energy gun. And that's what makes him grow. It's not particularly well established. And if you're watching over the course of two weeks, you've probably forgotten by this point. Anyway, so we have a giant robot. It's still very clunky because it's just a larger version of the clunky robot. And it's kind of King Kong-esque. Get Sarah Jane on a building. Okay, that's fine. I liked the aspect of this whole thing where we thought it ended with the crazy people and then it didn't end because the robot was still doing some stuff. But the growing of the robot was really shoehorned in. And I just like that the fact that they had to merge those two things together. Yeah, that was Terrence Dix being determined to shoehorn that in. Terrence Dix being a dick? Hey. <laughs> I finally did it. <laughs> but seriously, rest in peace, Terrence. Yes. You get the feeling maybe it's not such a good idea to have your outgoing script editor. (laughs) But it's tradition, Don. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But also, growing the robot to that size provides us some even more fun scale work. When he's attacking the unit soldiers and he's literally just shaking dolls, I really enjoyed that. That's my favorite is when he picks Sarah up and she's just a limp (laughs) doll and it looks... As Don said earlier, it probably looked okay on a tiny CRT TV. Does not look good in the 21st century on a 65-inch LED television. I mean, if I take my contact lenses out, it looks amazing. (laughs) Man, if I take my contacts out, I can't see Jack. I mean, the blurs, they look fine. Oh, I can't even see blurs. It's fine. All right, so the doctor makes this gooey stuff. Yeah, we see him do science. And he just kind of like throws it on <laughs> with, with, with a pail just a, pail. a drive he does it he does a, a drive by the doctor drive-by. does a drive by on the robot it's a comedy overflowing bucket it's back oh. to the cartoon of course you know our lab of course you know it's proper science because everything's bubbling you have to have that going on without the bubbling you're not really doing science you know what i'm sad though we see the doctor save the day. The robot eventually disintegrates, dies and disintegrates, actually disintegrates like you would think after a disintegration gun. But we didn't get to see Benton actually rescue Sarah Jane. And I was very sad about that. You wanted to see him put up a ladder and carry yes. her down it. Yes. <laughs> Climb up a photograph of a rooftop. Yeah. As I hinted at before, <laughs> I don't really think she would have appreciated it because, my God, in that last scene, she's just staring off into the distance. I mean, she it's she so... has a thousand yard stare. She is messed up. Before we get to that, because I do want to talk about that, the robot's death. It's stumbling around, shaded red in post-production, while shrinking and going, ah, ah, ah. It's comedy gold, and I don't think it's meant to be. I felt... Very awkward with it. In moments, I did find it funny because of how it looked, but it's so clear that the serial wants us to feel sympathy for him. Yeah, the music suggests that it's a serious, somber moment in which you're meant to feel sympathy, and it's just funny. Kind of felt like they canceled each other out and it just made it feel awkward instead. Let's talk about Sarah, because she is clearly very emotionally impacted by the events of this story. We've had it some in the past where companions have been affected, but I feel like this is one of the bigger ones. I think so too. I do. And, you know, she's kind of been through the ringer in this story Mm -hmm. between Miss Winters trying to order the robot to kill her at the beginning to then being actually captured and threatened to be killed. And then the robot basically is threatening to destroy everyone except her. She faced all three countdowns, I believe, on her own. Yeah. It's difficult to believe that she wouldn't have some form of PTSD here. This is one of my favorite doctor moments was him offering the jelly baby. And that 100% feels like the doctor to me when he doesn't get it. Mm. That's very doctor. Yeah. 
Also add that to the count. Plus one to the jelly baby count. Yes. Now, does he get two because he then offered some to Sullivan as well? Yes. Perfect. (laughs) Two instances of jelly baby offering. And of course, that's how he basically talks her back in. He breaks the tension Mm -hmm. with the jelly baby. If only that worked in real life for PTSD. (laughs) A lot of people would have far fewer problems. And this is also how we really get introduced to the fact that Sullivan is going to be a companion. It was not alluded to at all before. No, he just had someone crack something over his head. That's pretty much all we knew was going to happen to him. (laughs) Yeah. I like his style. You know, the double-breasted jacket, the large collar shirt, and the cravat. He's beautiful to look at. I get (laughs) that, but, you know. Beautiful to look at. Watch out, Minton. (laughs) Yeah, Julie's going to enjoy this season. You know, this is the last episode where Benton really appears. For no, a long not- time, he's not a regular anymore, and you know it. We get him twice more next season. That's next season. Anyway, anyway. So he gets tricked into going in, and I love his reaction of, oh, I say. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. In addition to that, I do want to touch on a couple of things the doctor says. So how he describes the robot as a wonderful creature when talking to Sarah, that felt incredibly warm. And then his little tantrum and Sarah accuses him of being childish. He says one of my favorite lines, which is, there's no point growing up if you can't be childish sometimes. I've always adored that line of dialogue. It's a very good line. And once again, you can hear Troughton saying it. Oh, that's oh, yes. 100% Troughton. And then that final shot, Lethbridge-Stewart. Well, Doctor, about that dinner <laughs> at the palace. TARDIS dematerializes. Yes, I'll tell them you'll be a little late. Oh, I think every show should end with the brigadier saying something snarky. I don't just mean Doctor Who. I mean every show. (laughs) I thought you were going to say that every scene should end with him saying something like that and then like a classic 80s freeze frame on him. And then the the title music plays over it. Find a way to shoehorn the brigadier into the young and the restless. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, normally we would jump straight into rating this, but... For both Power of the Daleks and Spearhead from Space, I asked the question, and in Troughton's case, I kept asking it until everyone said yes. And I think, Riley, it took you about three stories. So, is he the Doctor yet? To you. And we'll start with Don. Yes. Julie? No. Riley? 150% yes. And I'm going with yes as well. So, Julie, we'll ask you again at the end of next story. Mm-hmm. Part of it is there's a lot riding on everyone says the fourth Doctor's the best. Well, just about everyone says it. So I have very high expectations, and I think it's partially just because of the writing probably really doesn't help. That's fair. Speaking of that, we'll move into rating it, and I have the privilege of going first this week. And this is a solid story. It's not one of the very best, but it does what it's meant to do. It introduces a new Doctor. It did exactly what Terence Dix wanted to do in having those prior characters there to reassure everyone this is still the same show things are going to be a bit different but it's still the same show you're good here the plot was a little ridiculous at times but still fun i enjoyed watching it and there were a few issues with the direction at times which was surprising from christopher barry but not everything's perfect so i think for me this gets seven attempted scarf trips out of ten (laughs) and don you're up next This is an interesting story because, to me, it has a weird feel. When we began the Pertwee era, Spearhead from Space really established what it wanted to be. It was very different. It was shot on film. It looked really good, and it had a very strong feel and mission statement. This doesn't feel like the beginning of a new era. It feels like an epilogue for the third Doctor because it's... I don't know. We're, we're almost saying goodbye to our unit characters. We're getting a new companion, even though it really didn't feel like he was supposed to be there. It's just, it has a weird feel to it. At the same time, there's some fun stuff in it. There's more evidence of Barry Lett's crippling addiction to poor CSO. And there's some stuff that just comes across as really campy when maybe it shouldn't be. And I realize they're making more of an effort to have comedy, but there's a difference between laughing at something and laughing with something. So I'm going to give it six and a half overly dramatical mechanicals (laughs) out of (laughs) ten. And Julie, you're up next. There is a lot good with this serial. I really love Sarah Jane's storyline. I really love the music. I really love Kettlewell and how complex of a character he is. 
But there's just some things, and I think, Don, you alluded to it, is just a feeling. I was watching this, and I was like, this just feels weird. It feels different than what I've been watching for the past couple of years. And to be fair, I want the new showrunner to kind of new producers, new all that, whatever you want to call it. I want to have them so that I can get a feeling for what this doctor is really going to be. And yes, I'm not quite sold on the doctor yet, but I think hopefully that's mainly just a writing thing and we can move past that in a couple episodes. So I'm going to give it six and a half promoted Bentons out of 10. Excellent. And last but not least, Riley. Everything is completely in place to go around for a change in Doctor. The companion carries over, the unit gang carries over, we aren't suddenly hit with color for the first time, the stage was well set for the fourth Doctor's introduction, and he absolutely crushes it. I think he put his stamp on the role immediately. He glows in this, and the show feels so full of life and silly cheer for the first time in a while. Outside of the new Doctor, the serial self is probably just a nudge above average. It is a paint-by-numbers story, but it's meant to just be basic to let Baker show what he can do, and he makes it work. I am so very excited. Give me this type of story. Give me this type of Doctor. Make the story complex and brilliant, and you will get some high ratings from me. But for now, because of this story, has some warts on it, I'm going to temper it down to just eight enemies of the human race out of 10. Wow. It's been a while, Riley, since you've been so far above the rest of us. Well, that gives us an average of seven for this story. So not bad for a first story of, of a new Doctor. But with that, we are out of time. We will be back next episode when we're off into the far future as we head to the Ark in space. But in the meantime, thank you so very much for listening. And as always, have a good one. been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, The Doctor Does a Drive-By, was recorded on Wednesday the 3rd of August 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you're going to hold the world to ransom, actually have a plan on what to do if your bluff is called. Seriously.